Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. My guest today really knows what it's like to face the challenges that come around in business. After scaling a successful leisure company, it came crashing down in 2008 and he's had to rebuild from there and now runs a successful lending company. So my guest today is Matt Haycox. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Rod. Thanks for having me. I know you're supposed to be asking me these questions, but it just dawned on me. How long did it take you to think of the name for the podcast? I like this, Rod. The creative juices were flowing that day. <laughs> was it like literally the first one that came to your head and you thought, that's it, an obvious winner, or, or it, was lot, it, lots of it names that played around? It was a mate of mine, or actually a business partner, who just said it kind of a bit tongue-in-cheek, and we couldn't think of anything better, so we had to go with that. It works. I like it. I like it. <laughs> so, Matt, what, um, tell us a bit about your background then. How did you get into business? Did you, and why did you choose to kind of go into business at all, really, rather than go and get the typical nine to five? Well, oh, look, long story is as short as I can make it for you, and then you can pick, uh, pick which parts you want to dig deep on. I mean, I, um, I always wanted to be in business. I think it was probably a combination of two factors. One, my old man had his own business. So, uh, you know, whilst I mean, back then and even today, you know, me and him are very different operators in business. Having that entrepreneurial influence around me obviously rubbed off in some way. And secondly, I knew I always wanted to be rich. And as a kid in kind of, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, it was very much, I guess, the uh, the perception or the kind of, you know, logic flow that you could only get big money by owning your own business. And I guess they were the two factors that meant I knew I wanted to be in business. I didn't particularly know what I wanted to do, but I thought I like business and, and I want to make money. So I spent my uh, my early and mid-teenage years doing everything conceivable to try and, you know, buy something for a pound and sell it for two. You know, I was I was working down the markets most weekends, you know, buying and selling Tamagotchi pets and inflatable chairs and toilet roll. And, I mean, anything I could get my mitts on. You know, I, I tried uh, tried domain name squatting when I was, you know, 16, 17. That was, that was going to be my master plan to, um, to both make money from domain names and run off with my idol, Natalie Imbruglia, at the time when I bought natalieimbruglia.com and tried to ransom it back to a management team, but it didn't work out great. I, uh, I neither got paid nor, nor met my uh, future lover. And then, then I started, uh, I guess, my proper foray into business when I was 18. I left school. Avoided university, uh, not because I had a, a big hatred of the university. I just felt it was going to hold me back three or four years of, of, of getting on with where I wanted to go to. So I started to work in a family business. Uh, it wasn't my family's business. It was just a family business that my, my dad had invested in. And it was, I mean, it was a, a corporate clothing company. They made uniforms and career wear for security guards, bus drivers, nurses, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it was a business with every possible problem you could ask. I mean, it, you know, it was, it had customers who didn't want to deal with it, staff who didn't want to work there, suppliers who wouldn't supply it, banks who wouldn't fund it. And my dad, you know, he had a passive investment in there that was getting bigger and bigger. And, you know, I'd be coming home after uh, work each night because I was still living at home. You know, basically banging on the dinner table saying, you've got to come in there. You know, they're the robbing you, stop being lazy, stop staying at home. And my dad basically took the view that he didn't disagree with anything I was saying, but he just couldn't, couldn't really be bothered anymore. He said, look, I've had 25 years of business and 30 years of your mother. The last thing I needed to ha- have to come and get another headache in there. 
I think, you know, one day he just gave in and said to me, you know, look, you know, you go and do what you want with it. Can't, you can't make it any worse than, uh, than what they've done. Everybody apart from this, this one guy in the warehouse. And, and started the business from scratch. And not because I knew what I was talking about particularly, but uh, I kind of knew what should be done by knowing what shouldn't be done. Really, it was really finding my feet by trial and error and common sense. But, you know, knowing that, I guess I, I probably couldn't do it any worse than the last guys. And over the next three years, we took that business from losing 300 grand a year to making 30 grand a year, which whilst not huge numbers, was for me, you know, I guess, proof of the concept of the transformation and, you know, I guess, you know, vindication of my, of my learning curve, really. Um, I wanted to leave by that point. It was never, I guess it was never a sector that I was ever going to be passionate about, nor was the business in probably in the stage where it needed me so much anymore. I mean, my skill set, you know, back then and, and to today has really been more entrepreneurial, you know, kind of having an idea and executing on it, getting, you know, getting my hands dirty at the beginning of the journey. And this was, this was very much needing some structure and some, and some management now. So I left, my dad came back involved and I, I moved on to stage two of my life, which was to move into leisure, you know, and I went into leisure thinking that I now, you know, it's funny in the stages of your life when you, when you think you know everything, you know, and I kind of, I didn't want to go to university, felt um, spent all my teenage years reading every business book, therefore I knew everything there was to know and there was no point in going to uni. And then I started a business in the career where, in the career where company, thinking I knew everything and realised I knew nothing. And left there after three years, having every problem you could imagine and learning so much, I knew everything left there to start working in leisure realizing once again i still know nothing and on a whole new learning curve uh, curve all over again and my first successful venture in leisure was uh, you know it was a it was a business i entered purely you know my qualification was i spent most of my nights uh, in the strip club and uh, you know and because i knew the staff because i knew the management team and i had a couple of pubs anyway by that point qualified me to to, to know what i was doing and while i say that semi in jest you know the the problem with the pubs I had was, you know, our only income stream came from beer. I knew that we needed you know, other streams of income, you know, ideally more profitable streams, you know, higher margin streams of income. And, uh, you know, the strip club to have the box sounded like it's going to be fun to be in. So uh, I opened my first strip club in, in Wakefield in uh, March 2004. And it, it, you know, it kind of hit the ground running. Listen, I'm going to, I always say it was, you know, probably the right place at the right time. I mean, I'm not going to, take all the credit away from myself have a, I did have a, a good plan for it I think which you know we, we acted on but you know it was it was the right time I think both geographically and economically uh, and that club uh, hit the ground running uh, you know it was kind of cash producing from day one I started the the journey of the next four or five years for me really which was a which was a, a debt fueled expansion plan in strip clubs bars pubs restaurants finance property everything in between I mean anyone who remembers 2004 2005 and that kind of era you know, knows how um, how easy it was to to borrow money then, whether that was personally in your credit cards or or from a business perspective. And uh, you know, I I knew nothing about borrowing money at the time. You know, got, accidentally got introduced to an asset finance broker who uh, you know refinanced a piece of air conditioning for about thirty grand. I didn't really know what it meant. He just told me we now own your air conditioning, but we've just paid you thirty grand for it, and uh, you know you, you can rent it back for us. I thought, oh, well, that's a that's a great little model. But what else can I go and refinance? And, uh, you know, over the next kind of four years, five years, we, we kind of raised about eight, uh, about 45, 50 million quid and grew all the businesses. But they were, they were all, you know, completely over leveraged, completely undercapitalized. And, you know, in June, July 2008, which again, anyone old enough to remember, uh, will uh, we'll, we'll know what I'm talking about. It was the onset of the credit crunch and, you know, my bed of sand, house of cards, whatever analogy you want to use, came uh, 
came crashing down. I, uh, I was, uh, it was going to be chapter three of my life. I'm going to take a pause for a lens sip and you can... There's a lot to unpick there. So one of the first... I, know, I, still massive, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've done that speech on a podcast. And I still haven't found a way to make it any shorter. That is brilliant. <laughs> so I guess we'll start with the first bit that came to mind where you said right at the beginning, you wanted to be rich. What does rich mean to you? Mm. What is rich? I mean, listen, then rich just meant a lot of money to be able to buy, to be able to buy whatever it was I wanted. You know, what I you want to do with you want and all that sort of stuff. Or yeah, but, I mean, that was my definition of a 10-year-old. You know, like, uh, 30 years on, I've probably got a very different definition of it. And, you know, I'm not going to say that there aren't plenty of days where it means, you know, more materialistic trappings. But the reality of it now really is much more freedom-led. And, yeah. uh, you know, be, being able to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And, you know, actually, that still means still means working. That still means creating and building. But, it, you know, it means not having, I guess, you know, not having the pressures to have to say yes to something at a time you don't want to say it. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, so, look, with the benefit of hindsight, then, could you have seen that coming earlier in 2008? And if so, what would you put in place to mitigate it? Would it have just been a case of not refinancing so much, not trying to grow as aggressively? Or it's easy to say that, but when you're young and hungry, you probably want to do it, don't you? You know, it's, it's funny because um, I've never really been asked that question before until recently. So I've so never really thought of it because you know, normally when you when you look back on your mistakes, you always say, well, knowing what I know now, what could I have done differently back then? And I think the reality of my situation back then is there actually wasn't really anything I could have done differently to avoid an ultimate bankruptcy. Re- reason being, you know, we built a business based off on short-term expensive debt. So it was high, high rates of interest and short payback terms. You know, so so the, the cash flow was, you know, horrendous slash negative. And, and so the obvious answer would be to say, well, you shouldn't have financed it in that note. You should have more mainstream bank debt. You should have a better equity base or whatever. Obviously, you know, that's the obvious answer. But the reality is, the reason I was using the kind of people I was using is because no one mainstream wanted to fund the kind of industries I was in. So, you know, when I look back at it now, what could I have done different? I actually don't think there's anything I could have done different. And I just really have to accept it as, uh, you know, as as one of life's uh, great expensive lessons and, you know, and the, and the learning curve that, you know, took me to, took me to where I am today. I mean, I also, you know, I do also try not really, not really dwell on the past. And whilst I'm not really, I'm certainly not into, I don't know, let's say, uh, you know, the secret or the magic or all these books that the birds like to bang all over Instagram. Uh, I'm not going to say things happen for a reason, but I do believe that, you know, the journey is what it is. And that, you know, as negative as some of those stories may be from the past, if they hadn't happened, the next thing would have happened, which would have meant I'm not sat here today. So, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, whether whether our journeys are pre-programmed or whether our fault, you know, I think if you're happy where you are today, then, then let's not moan about the past too much. Absolutely. So what was the fallout then in 2008? Obviously, the reclaiming debts against assets, I guess they were having to be liquidated. How did it, that kind of affect your business relationships? And how, do, how long did these kind of repercussions last? So, well, I guess in simple terms, all our business were insolvent. You know, we had debts in excess of our assets, you know, when, when the first, and that was, the reality is, They'd been like that for, for months, if not years prior. But, you know, we were able to, 
probably mask it. I don't mean that in a deceptive way, but you know, we're able to convince ourselves, you know, yeah. as delusional business owners do. You know, we're, as long as we can, as long as we can pay the bills to get the next month, you know, we convince ourselves everything's okay, and you know, we, we never. And you know, the reality of the business have been solvent for a long time. So when you know, when there was no ability to continue to borrow money in the middle of 2008. And we therefore we started to get the couldn't make repayments. That was the beginning of the end. You know, the first creditor took action, and uh, you know at that point I took the view not to really fight, not to fight the early creditors because if I'd have won, I mean, the, A, I would never have won. But yeah. even if I did win, then there was another one to get me next week, another one to get me the week after. So it was really time to put my hands up and uh, you know accept defeat and move on. And so it was a pretty. It was a pretty rapid process. I mean, I would say, you know, if you know, I was still borrowing big chunks of money in June 2008. I still had a, a 999 credit rating, as, as all of the English Experian lovers will, uh, will know what that means. And then, you know, come, come the beginning of August, that was the start of things going wrong. And by September, to September the 8th, I think I was made personally bankrupt. Um, and the businesses were all insolvent as well. So, Effectively, you know, I mean, that, that's the speed it happened. And wow. when you say, what did it mean? I mean, it meant absolutely everything every gone, uh, you know, all in the hands of the receivers. You know, they sold what they could, you know, salvaged what they could, you know, but the reality was it was just mess. And, you know, when you say, what did it do to my relationships? I mean, obviously, at the time, it was very raw to everybody. As time went on, the, you know, the more pragmatic people knew that I never set out with malicious intent. And that as greedy as I was to borrow, they were they were greedy to lend. And you know, if anything, they they had 20 years on me, and they should have known better. You know, it was my it was my first rodeo, and I was just a I was just a giddy 25 year old. But you know, as time went on, I mean, like I said, the people who realised I'd not set out to do you know to be malicious or to defraud anyone ultimately came back you know came back to deal with me. And you know, I mean, even to this day, I still I still do deal with some of those people now. I think that's such a good lesson that in terms of it, it, there's two parties involved in this. There's the lender and the person that's borrowing as well. And absolutely, it's like you see it all the time when things go wrong. You think, well, hold on. What what did you look at? What was the due diligence? So, Absolutely. Yeah. And what kind of due diligence, if you were a lender now, which you obviously are, what would you be looking at if you were going to lend to yourself back then in, say, June 2008? Some of the kind of warning signals have been then. Well, it's, it's funny you say it, because just taking that question off on a, on a slight tangent. So, like you say, my business now is lending. And, and after, after rebuilding, after the bankruptcy, you know, I, I started as a finance broker, which I was doing pre-bankruptcy, and then started to build a small lending book, which has ultimately grown into a, a larger lending book today. And our... We raise money from high net worth investors and we then, we then lend to UK SME businesses. And we have a, I guess, a sales pitch to both investor to lender to, and to borrower, uh, which is both different, but from the same thing that, you know, our lending criteria is an extension of my historical problems. So we say to our borrowers, look, you know, when you're dealing with us, we were not lenders by trade. We're, we're business owners. We were borrowers before we were lenders. Therefore, we, you know, whatever problems you think you've got, you know, we, what those problems are, we've experienced them. We, we would come through the other side. So, you know, we're not, computer says no, we're not a faceless banker or we're not some, you know, you know to give an umbrella on a rainy day or whatever expressions we want to use. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're very much, very much a business owner who would like to, like to be you, which doesn't necessarily mean, well, it means one of two things. It means one, that we can probably find a way to give money where others wouldn't because we understand the situation better. But it doesn't necessarily mean we're going to give it 
if you don't, if you shouldn't be having it, because you know, again, because with that impartial pair of eyes who's been in that problem, you know, you know, very much know what it's like to to try and sh teach someone to see the wood from the trees and not and be delusion and really accept defeat when you need to accept defeat. As our pitch to our borrowers, when we're talking to our lenders, we're saying, you know, yeah, I've I've gone bankrupt. Yes, you know, I've cost a lot of lenders a lot of money, but because I've lived through both sides of it. I've seen the mistakes they've made. I've seen their inadequacy of taking security. I've seen their, you know, their liberalness to lend or their, their greed or their laziness or, you know, whatever we want to say. Because of that, you know, we can structure our product accordingly to protect you, Mr. Investor. So, that, you know, that, that kind of backstory has ended up why I'm where I am today. But I guess in, in answer to your question, I've looked at then would be the same as what I look at today. You know, I mean, I'm a very secure lender. You know, I mean, there's only two really ways you can lend, you're secured or unsecured. And, yeah. and when, when you're lending from a security position, you know, I guess you, you know you've always got something to fall back on if it goes wrong. You know, that security may be stretched at times because, you know, if it was the cleanest, simplest, black and white security, there'd probably be someone else, uh, someone else doing the deal. So I guess where we come into our own is to be able to understand security a bit better and ask that asset because it might be a bit of a dirty workout. We're prepared to get our hands dirty, and we know we know how we can get out of it. I mean, I've been in the unsecured lending space before. Uh, I don't like it. You know, I think it might work if you're if you're doing it on a massive portfolio basis. You know, if you've got tens, if not hundreds of millions sure. out there, and it's and it's you know splitting lots of little loans. But you know, my simplistic view is, you know, an unsecured lender may think they're getting four percent a month for argument's sake on an unsecured basis. But I'll say, well, I can get 2%, 2 2.25% on a secure basis, and I guarantee you I'll get more than 1.75% a month in, in bad debt. So hey, look, it's, not cause what, it's not that one model's right, one model's wrong. Uh, maybe I'm just not very good at doing it unsecured. I, I don't know, but, you know, I like to be able to, I like to be able to sleep at night, and, uh, you know, we, we like, to, like to know there's enough collective things to go wrong. Absolutely. So it's checking on that, uh, the quality of the air conditioning unit, I guess, and... See, see well, well, that, that's the problem. That was one of my frustrations with lenders back then. It's kind of how we started our early model, because you'd have some lenders who'd say, well, we will fund against air conditioning, but we won't fund against EPOS systems. Or they'll say, we fund against EPOS systems, won't do tables and chairs. And I'd be saying to these but you're mental. If this goes wrong, you know, these are all just effectively unsecured loans, you know, yeah. but pretending there's you know, some asset behind there just to make it fit your business model. Because if this goes wrong, whether you've got the air conditioning, the toilet seat, the you know, fridge freezer, you're not recovering any money for things. I mean, okay, if we're talking cars, that's fine. If we're talking printing presses, you know, it's a bit different. You know, these, these are assets that have got residual value. But when you're fitting out a nightclub, you know, if you've got a 5p in the pound recovery, you've, got, you've probably done well. So, uh, you know, I guess, you know, our, our lending model is, is based, in, based in reality and on honesty. <laughs> <laughs> and um, look, how did you get motivated then to keep going after all that happened, rather than, to, I guess, just going to get another nine to five job? Was it still that thing of, oh, I want to be rich, and so I've got to just keep keep pushing at it? What, how did you well, do yeah, I mean, it must I, have been I mean, well, quite simply, I feel I didn't have a choice. I mean, I was never made for a nine to five. I mean, I would say at the time that I went bankrupt, you know, I, I was married. I had a one-year-old daughter. So, you know, I could have sat around and watched Jeremy Kyle all day. But, you know, it, it wouldn't have paid the bills. 
So, you know, I didn't really have any choice but to, I guess, put my ego to one side and on the horse. And, and yeah, I mean, it's, it was a combination of the two. You know, I bills to pay at a more micro level. And from a bigger picture perspective, you know, it was never going to suit me to be suit me to be sat in an office. Absolutely. And um, look, so facing that challenge, like a lot of people today, like you hear kind of, I don't know, younger people maybe, there's not much resilience again because they haven't haven't gone through these big challenges how important do you think something like that is in business do you think it's actually important to go through some tough times come out the other end or can people actually just get on and, and do really well all the time well i mean i think it's, i think anyone who's done really well you know unless you've done well on day one and they're only four days into the journey i'm going to tell you you know how many tough times are out there i mean when you say you know do I think it's important for someone to, let's say, go through a catastrophic bankruptcy? I mean, ho- hopefully people people can avoid that because, you know, it's, um, it's not a, a large percentage of people that have it and there's probably a, an even smaller percentage of people that cover from it. But I think, if, well, if you're going to go into business, but if you're going to go into life in general, you've got to accept and understand there are going to be as, you know, almost as many bad days as there are good days. You know, certainly in growing a business, you know, if you, if you haven't that resilience, you're going to but you're going to be very disappointed you know a lot of the time i mean it's easy everyone will be doing it and if on either i think but i think for me the best way to navigate it all is a accepting there's going to be problems b accepting you you know you don't know everything you know which was a big mistake in mine in the early days and you know see surrounding yourself with the people who can help you on that journey because most problems out there you know, other than, other than death, probably have been uh, have been experienced by someone else ahead of you, and they've lived to tell the tale. You know, for me, that's I always say that fear comes from the unknown, and you know, the unknown can only really come from from not having experienced these things. And a lot of problems you don't want to have to experience, but if someone else has experienced it for you, can and can kind of hold your hand along the way, then that will make the journey smoother. But listen, if you think business is gonna is gonna be all smooth, if you think life's gonna be all smooth, you need to find find a find a different career. <laughs> I guess it's a bit about managing expectations then from the sounds of it. Yeah, I think that's probably where disappointment comes from in general, isn't it? You know, any disappointment is, is is created from that expectation versus reality. And, you know, whether that business, life, relationships, whatever, and, um, you know, and whether that mismatch comes from watching too many Instagram videos of people in rented Ferraris or from, from just, you know, not being realistic at all. That is ultimately when, you know, when you get disappointed. Absolutely. So look, you're quite outspoken about money and how it's been important to you. There's been articles in the paper with you kind of commenting about those sort of things. And you spoke before about kind of being rich and your want to be rich and what that does. What does success look like to you and how does it differ from being rich? So so I always say that my only definition of success is happiness. Now, because if you're happy, you're successful. It's as simple as that. Now, there's going to be steps along the way to that. And so for me to say, if you're rich, you're successful, the two don't get hand. Maybe you need to have, do you need to have level of money to be happy? I think you do. 
absolutely. I think anyone who's, who's otherwise is, is, you know, just jumping on a woke bandwagon because everything you want to do takes money. Now, do we all need Ferraris and private jets? Absolutely not. But does everybody need a level of money to be able to pay a medical bill when it falls due or to not have to stress over a kid's Christmas present? Or something? Absolutely. So, you know, got to be a base level of it. And then, then on, I guess, it's, it's down, down, to, down to everybody's in base. But for me, no, the only real metric is, is are you happy? Put the money in and you, you've got the money and you're not happy, then you're not successful. And if you haven't got any money, but you are happy, then you are successful. And, you know, we just need to find, uh, I guess, our balance along the way that works for each of us individually. Absolutely. So it's very subjective. Obviously, you now lend money. How did you go from coming out of what happened in 2008 to building this lending business? What's the story there? So when I come out of bankruptcy and I was I was needing to earn money, the first thing I mean, the only thing I had to money with at the time was to you know trade my skill set for, for money. Um, my skill set, one of my skill sets at the time, was the ability to raise finance, which I'd, I'd learned by accident, having done it for so long for myself. And then you know my kind of peers or mates in Leeds, uh, where I'm from, you know they, they'd be kind of coming to me saying. Oh, you know, we know you've just raised some money, uh, you know, in a situation where it was probably difficult to get. Can you raise us? And these weren't, these weren't big loans. These were 25 grand loans, 50 grand loans. And I, I made a bit of a side gizzard as a finance broker. Um, so that really became my full-time thing once, um, once the bankruptcy was over. Rather, once the bankruptcy happened, I was needing to go out to work again. And then I just, I just really went from broker to a bit of lending. So it was just kind of the, the split really where I was 100% broking and 0% lending and then a bit lending. And, uh, you know, um, as I said, some of the uh, lenders and some of the investors who, who dealt with me first time around, you know, they were still happy to deal with me because you knew I'd, I'd never maliciously set out to set out to defraud them. So when, so when I wanted to raise money to start a lending operation, you know, some of these guys came back on. But I mean, lending is the most capital intensive business in the world. So it, where we are today, doesn't really bear any resemblance to where I was 15 years ago when we started it. I mean, I think, you know, my, my f- first investor gave me 100 grand or something from memory, you know, back in, I don't know, 2010, 2011. And we probably split that up into 10 loans of 10 grand each. You know, I mean, if you asked me today, we wouldn't even talk to someone for a loan for less than a grand because it's not, not even worth the effort. And over the years, you know, one investor became a 250 grand, you know, 250 grand became 500. We got a million pound investor and thought that, you know, thought it was the biggest deal in the world. And, you know, now we've got guys who put 15 million, 20 million quid with us. And it's just, it's just really been a tension of, of uh, more of the same and, uh, and, you know, growing my network and build, building relationships in that space. Brilliant. And what, when you're on, now that you're on the other side of that lending table, um, what do you see as some of the biggest risks to the businesses that are approaching you for lending and what should they be doing to mitigate those risks? Hello, everyone. I, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to talk to you quickly about a sponsor of ours called Signature Property Finance. They are a bridging loan provider based in Solihull, Birmingham. The company also has regional offices in Cardiff and Edinburgh, which enable them to serve clients across the whole of England, Wales and Scotland. They were established in 2012 and Signature have two primary funding lines, private equity and a traditional debt facility via a high street bank. So what is it they fund and how can they help you? 
Well, Signature will lend against both residential and commercial property on a standard bridge with a maximum loan to value of 70% and 60% respectively for a term of between six and 18 months. They offer both a light and heavy refurbishment product, again, for a term of up to 18 months. Light refurbishment amounts to anything non-structural in nature, whereas anything involving structural changes requires a heavy refurbishment product. They will lend up to 75% of the lower of the purchase price or day one open market value. Signature also lend development finance up to a maximum loan of 5 million and for up to 15 units. The loan terms are up to 24 months and cover residential or mixed-use developments and they will lend up to the lower of 65% of the GDV or 80% of total costs. So why would you use them? Well, in, other, in the words of CEO Tony Gilbertson, Signature do what they say they're going to do. Provided the information given by the customer and or the broker on day one is accurate, the terms issued on day one will be the same terms that the customer draws down on. So if you've got any property finance requirements, please contact Tony Gilbertson at Tony, T-O-N-Y, at signaturepropertyfinance.co.uk. And there'll be a link to that in the show notes. And for a limited time only, they are doing a special offer for all Rodcast listeners. If you look to get finance with them and mention the Rodcast, you will get free legals for a limited time only. Yes, that's right. That's free legals for a limited time only. Just mention the Rodcast. They really are a fantastic company that do what they say they're going to do and act quickly. Back to the show. Most businesses that come to us, I mean, not I mean, they shouldn't be borrowing money because you shouldn't even exist. And I think I think think that's the reality. I mean, you know, we 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 kind of have this big misnomer of businesses and business owners and entrepreneurs, and you know, because somebody's created a limited company and decided that they want to be their own boss or you know you know not be told what to do by anyone else or any of these naive comments that are chucked around, you know, that, that qualifies qualifies them to be in business. And most of the businesses that we see, most of the business ideas that we see, that are to be terrible, and you know they shouldn't be funded, they shouldn't, they shouldn't exist at all. And I think you know what's, but what's kept them sending and proliferating is the easy capital that's, that's around. And I mean, it's, it's you know it's funny because I mean people, you know, when 2008 happened, everybody said, oh my God, they'll never make the same mistakes that they made back, you know, back over four, five, six. Okay, fine. You know, 2009 and 10 was probably wasn't the easiest time to borrow money. But I mean, if you look at the amounts of capital that's in the marketplace. Now, if you look at the types of lenders, you know, when I was borrowing money, the word alternative lender didn't even exist. You know, I mean, I built all our businesses up before there was peer-to-peer lending, before there was social media. The amount of access to capital now is absolutely enormous. And, you know, pre-COVID, I mean, if we go back to kind of 2018, 2019, you know, there's all these utterly terrible businesses that have just been able to last another month and another month by borrowing some more money off somebody by not paying HMRC, by, by kidding themselves and really do have a, uh, have a business. And when, when COVID happened, you know, we thought that um, that was going to be the end of these businesses. You know, there was going to be no trade, uh, you know, lockdown and finish them off. And, you know, as bad as it may sound to say, but, you know, do what needs to be done because, you know, it's just like putting a, putting a dying patient out of the misery. But then obviously, you know, COVID had the exact opposite effect of bounce back loans and C-bills loans and these shit businesses have never had it so good. So, you know, you then, you then get to the end of that, but when the bounce back loans have run out, 
then these guys will take some time. Well, no, I mean, people still kind of keep lending again then. I think but now it's a bit different. You know, I mean, capital genuinely is tighter now than it, but, you know, there's, I think there's still some runway to go before, you know, before a lot of these businesses close down. But I've kind of got a rant there. I've forgotten what the original question well, was. I like but, it. Uh, I, mean, but, I mean, what? I guess, what do you think the biggest risks to those businesses are and what should those businesses be doing to mitigate it? I mean, I think the biggest risk in most businesses are, are lack of knowledge and undercapitalization. I mean, like I say, you know, so many business owners, uh, you know, think they're a business owner simply because they own a business. You know, they don't, uh, you know, they don't have, you know, the skill set required to, you know, required to run a business. You know, they, don't, they don't understand finance. They don't understand sales or marketing or, you know, whatever all, all the key kind of key components are. And the analogy I always give is if someone says, oh, um, you know, I'm going to go and play football. And they just started playing football today. They would never possibly think that that qualifies them to go and play, you know, to go and play a game with you know Manchester United. I mean, they wouldn't even think they'd be fit to play you know play in a Sunday five-a-side league. And it's a very clear, I guess, skill set and scoreboard in there. But when someone starts in business, you know, simply say, "Oh well, I started the business. I'm a business owner." And it's, it's very binary. There's no scale on the way. There's no level. And these people who just started a business last week literally put themselves, you know, in, in Elon Musk or, you know, Richard Branson or something. And um, so I think, you know, that the biggest risk for most of the business owners I see is that the lack of knowledge, you know, particularly when it comes to the finances. I mean, I mean, you could probably apply it to, to most areas, but the lack of financial understanding by most business owners is absolutely frightening. Yeah, I can't disagree with that. I guess it's difficult when you're starting a business, though, isn't it? But you've got to be a bit of a jack of all trades. You've got to be in the marketing. You've got to be in business development. You've got to be kind of, well, not so much HR, but certainly finance. And normally it's the business development side that takes all your focus because you've got to start getting like the trading going or the money going and things like that. And then... You know, I mean, look, absolutely, you've got to be that jack of all trades, not saying that if someone starts a business and they can surround themselves by all yeah. these talented people. What I mean is, is whether you're going to be a jack of all trades or whether you're going to be a CEO with, you know, seven different divisional directors underneath you, you've got to have the knowledge to be able to to be able to partake in conversations with them, if not to do their job better than them, certainly to be able to have a conversation so that they're not going to be pull, pull the wool over your eyes. Yeah. But um, you know, and ultimately, it really for me, it kind of more comes down to down to arrogance that you know that because I guess again because business is something that anybody can get, you know, anybody can become a business owner by you know, selling a product tomorrow or forming a limited company tomorrow. That you know, people think that they have uh, this superior knowledge of it when uh, you know, when, like I said, if you tennis racket tomorrow, you wouldn't think that you you were Roger Federer, you know, in sense, but because you, it's easy, the barrier to entry for business is so low, people, you know, completely outrank themselves. And then how much do you think, like, I guess I want to kind of touch on social media here, because mm. you talked about how you raised finance before the days of social media. Now, I mean, you go on to, I mean, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, there'll be these ads coming up about investment schemes and things like this to put your money into. I mean, how much, how much do you think people need to be wary of social media? And also like, is it, it's obviously a powerful tool to some businesses. 
I mean, I think, you know, like, um, I guess, like, like money, booze and drugs, you've got to look at uh, social media as an amplifier of something as opposed to a, you know, to a changer of something. And, you know, I mean, when you look at people getting scammed on social media, still the same scams that were going on 15 years ago or 50 years ago. It's just that they're able to operate scams at, um, at mass scale. I think, you know, ultimately, you know, most people get scammed because, because they're being greedy. Unless it's a very, I don't know, a very sophisticated fraud. You know, if you if you look at the scams of people, it's you know someone getting in touch and saying, "Hey, uh, send me send me ten grand to trade for Bitcoin because I'm going to make you forty percent a month return." But listen, whether you've been contacted on social media or whether you've been you know a door to door salesman's come and seen you, the only reason you are making that trade is because you are greedy and stupid. So so yeah, I mean I think uh, I think anything whether it's social media, whether it's the internet, you know any medium. That has the ability to you know, to grow an audience and to operate at mass scale is is, is only a good thing you know, for the right people. Yes, there's, there's always there's going to be bad actors, but there's anything, and you've just got to be sensible and have your wits about you. Brilliant! I've really enjoyed this conversation, Matt. Um, you've got a great kind of don't want to say cynical, but you've been you've been through it. Not a cynic, am I? Really? It is. It's, it's nice to hear. Um, I'll finish on one last question then. So what's the mm. kindest thing anyone's ever done for you in business? The kindest thing anyone's done for me in business? Well, that's a question I've never been asked before. I don't know if you know that it's been the guys who put me into administration back in 2008 because they gave me the biggest wake-up call I needed. You know, they could have been even kinder by doing, doing it for me in 2007 or 2006. And I say that in jest, but it, it kind of is true. But I don't know, in terms of a nice thing, I think, you know, listen, Dubai right now, and the difference I see between Dubai and the UK is how helpful people are with, you know, with their knowledge, with their contact base, uh, you know, with, with, with just, I guess, sharing their experiences. So I, I couldn't um, pinpoint one individual circumstance or instance, but I think just in general, you know, other business owners, you know, share, you know mentoring me, sharing their mistakes is kind is helpful is essential i think you know if, if anyone listening to this takes take away from this that you know this is after 25 years of, of business and making making a lot more money you know, i'm the first person to admit how much i don't know about anything and and say how much to teach me and if i'm doing that after 25 years you guys gotta be doing it after 25 minutes yeah brilliant um matt so where can people find out a bit more about you i know you've got a youtube channel and uh and, and your yeah, you can find well. me all over the internet. So uh, I've got a website, which is uh, matt-haycox, that's M-A-T-T-H-A-Y-C-O-X-com. I'm on all things social, so Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, which is the Matt Haycox, T-H-E-M-A-T-T-H-A-Y-C-O-X. I've got a podcast too, The Matt Haycox Show, and I've got a recently launched newsletter as well, which if you jump on the website or any of those social channels, you'll be able to uh, subscribe to your weekly dose of Matt on there as well. Brilliant. And I'll make sure I put a link to all of those in the uh, show notes. Thank so, you. Thanks so much, Matt. It's been great. So really, really. No, thanks for having me, buddy.